we need to have a sense of wonder for the things that really deserve it. Things that are by definition wonderful. Sometimes we use the phrase wonderful, and the way it gets used oftentimes, we think of it just as kind of a uh, a way of saying, somebody says, that's wonderful. It's like saying, well, that's nice. That's wonderful. But you think of what the word wonderful means. It's, it's something that it, what you're looking at is just something that should and does fill you with wonder and awe and, and amazement. And it, it is good to have things that, that you have this sense of wonder about. If you have a life that is without wonder, a life without wonder is, is a very small life. A life without wonder is a life without joy. When we look at things that truly give us a sense of wonder, I mean, we look at them and we say, what in the world? How can this, how can this be? What is this like? We want to look at it more. We want to delve into the mysteries and to, to understand it better. Not so that we can just understand it and then just, okay, I get it now, and then walk away but so that we can just uh, look into this mystery and be awestruck by it more and more, even if it's something, the best things that we, we could never get to the end of with, with our intellect, but we let, it, we let it change us. And I think there are so many things in life that we need to uh, have a sense of wonder about. We shouldn't be just going through life, oh, this is boring, whatever. Uh, I mean, just think of life. Uh, just the fact that we exist and how we work, or even the simplest life, how amazing that is. You know, our universe and all its vastness and all its complexity, all these things should give us a sense of wonder. But most of all, we need to have this sense of wonder about salvation in Christ. This is amazing. This is, this is wonderful. And the Apostle Peter as he's writing this letter of 1 Peter to us, you can tell that he feels this way. That for Christ to come and save sinners like him and like us, this is something that, that blows his mind. This is our fourth message, uh, strictly going through uh, 1 Peter. And as we've been going through this, we see that Peter is really awestruck by this. And he is describing to us, the, the greatness of salvation and having this living hope in Christ and everything that is, it is about. And now, as we get to this uh, next section, we're going to see that, really, Peter could have just, he wouldn't have had to add this section. He's described salvation in Christ, and he could have just decided, well, I'm going to go on now to the application, to what you need to do in response to this. But I think... Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, added these verses here to let us know that it isn't just him that feels this way about how marvelous, how wonder-inducing salvation is. But he says, I want to show you that it's not just me. I want to show you others from Scripture that felt this way about salvation in Christ specifically and what a wonder this really is. So let's read First Peter Uh, Chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 today. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ 
and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. The wonder of salvation in Christ. And so it's not just Peter who thinks this way. We see the first point of, of two main points is he is making the case that, hey, it's been like this the, in the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, they looked ahead in wonder to our salvation in Christ. They looked ahead and this was something that uh, brought them wonder. They wanted to learn more about this. And the prophets looked ahead in wonder to our salvation in Christ. And we see this in all these verses. We're going to start by working our way through verses 10 and 11 here. And first of all, it says concerning this salvation. So that's been the subject that Peter has been talking about. And so in the past few weeks as we've gone through this, Peter had been uh, communicating to his, his audience uh, that they were, on one hand, they're exiles in this world, but he says you're elect exiles, and that they have um, been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, sprinkled with the, the, the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, he talks to them and says that they were, God caused them to be born again into a living hope. And what does that mean, to be born again? And they have this new, this hope that they have that is a living hope. That is, it's not going to perish, it's not going to fade away, it's not going to be destroyed, but it's alive forever. And their salvation is guarded by the power of God himself that upholds their faith and, and, uh, and, and keeps them saved so that they're not going to lose the salvation that God has provided and given to them. And that even though they may go through trials and suffering in life, they can still rejoice through all of this. Because one of the things that also trials, what it does is it tests their faith and shows whether it's genuine or not. And if they have genuine faith, a faith that doesn't break, it doesn't crumble or turn to, to ash, this shows that it is the real thing. And it is reinforced and upheld by, by God himself. And at the end of uh, verses 8 and, and then 9, it says um, that they can rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So the salvation that God has brought to them through Jesus and what he has done for them, uh, this is what it's talking about when it says concerning this salvation, this marvelous salvation that he has been unpacking for them. And then Peter says, the prophets who prophesied about this grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Talking about the, the prophets, and I believe it makes sense here that he's talking about the Old Testament prophets, uh, probably first and foremost, that they knew some things about the coming Christ, things that God had given to them, and they looked on in wonder. Think of what the prophets were, and we've had other messages where we've talked about this in depth, but the prophets were like the mouthpiece of God. That God spoke his words through the prophet. He, gave, he put his words in their mouth. So when they spoke or wrote scripture, it was, Thus saith the Lord. And it had the same authority, it had the same accuracy as if God was saying it. 
because it was God speaking through these, these prophets. And not everything that the prophet said was always predictive prophecy about the future. Uh, it could just be about their circumstances in the world and calling them to repent, but it was God speaking with authority through these, these prophets. But it also did have to do with the future as well because that was one of the ways that you would know when there was a genuine prophet. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 through 22, it gives the test of a prophet. That the way that you would know if it's a genuine prophet is if they could predict the future accurately all the time. That when they made predictions, it wasn't that they're uh, right a third of the time or 50% or 90%, but all the time. Because only God knows the future. Satan is smart and he's crafty and he's a good guesser, but he can't get the future right all the time. So if there's prophets that are uh, being inspired by, by the devil, they might get things right once in a while, but not all of the time. So if a prophet gets things wrong, then you know that's not a prophet from God. Which, by the way, I do have to say, um, you know, in the past few months, there have been uh, some, some people pretending to be prophets that prophesied things about uh, who would be president right now that it turns out that uh, those were false prophecies. And I saw a little video clip of one that he was actually, this person, instead of making excuses like a lot of them, was apologizing for it and said, I got it wrong, but then said, but that doesn't make me a false prophet. I said, well, according to Deuteronomy, yeah, that's, that's exactly what that makes you. I mean, you specifically said God was giving you this message and this didn't happen. Then that is what makes you a false prophet. And that person should be thankful that we're not living under the penalties for the Old Testament law right now, because the penalty for that would be you get stoned to death for being a false prophet. You know, we should be very, very careful to claim that, that God is telling us something. But these were the legitimate prophets in the Old Testament. And when they prophesied, when they spoke, um, it, was, it was thus saith the Lord. And so, they would predict things, but also, as we see here, so many of the things that they did talk about in the future were centered on something very specific, centered on the coming of this, this coming one, the anointed one, the Messiah. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. In, in Greek, it's the Christ that would come one day. And so they're looking ahead to him and his coming. So as we look at this and we think about this, and it when it talks about the Spirit of Christ that's in them predicting these things, one of the first things we realize is that this means that Scripture is not the mere word of human beings. That when we read the Bible, this is not just some very uh, wise or intelligent people giving good advice or their own thoughts that we should consider. There are a lot of books that are like that and maybe good reading. This is different. This is on a whole different level that these thoughts and these, uh, the words and ideas didn't ultimately originate with the human authors. These are from God, and specifically the Holy Spirit working in and through these prophets and the, the writers of Scripture. The ideas did not originate with them. And we see in this passage that the Old Testament prophets didn't even fully understand the messages all the time that, that God was speaking through them. 
I mean, he gave them words to say, and they would announce them or, or write them down. Uh, but we see here, it's, it says uh, they, they had to search and inquire carefully, inquiring you know, about Christ and who is he, when is he going to come? And they didn't have all the answers. They didn't ha- weren't able to have everything uh, figured out. And this is evidence also that the message did not originate with these human authors. If it was all from them, there wouldn't be this, this mystery. But if it's God putting words into their mouth and they're delivering it, then sometimes, yeah, they wouldn't understand fully what they're saying. Uh, God you know, used their vocabularies and, and different aspects of their personalities sometimes, but it, this was God giving information that was above and beyond them. I think this also helps us to, with the realization that the way that Scripture is given to humanity is progressive. Now, I don't mean that in the way that progressive gets used in, in politics these days. What I mean, it's, it, it's a process of being given, and it's given little by little. Uh, that the entirety of Scripture was not just dumped on humanity all at once, but it was revealed bit by bit. It's what we call progressive revelation. God giving little bits to humanity at, at different times. And just as an example to um, what this is like is, uh, well, our family, and, and maybe yours too, uh, we're watching um, Marvel's WandaVision, okay? So it's this TV show, and uh, if, you, if you haven't watched it, it's a show about a woman that is married uh, to a robot uh, that died a few years ago, and they're trapped in a 50s sitcom, and once in a while, beekeepers come up from the sewers. So um, just like basically any other TV series you've watched before, um, so if that doesn't make sense to you, uh, if you watch this show, uh, on, on this show, um, the first epi- you watch it, and it, other shows are like this too, where you're saying, what is going on? This doesn't make any sense. I don't know what's going on. And then they give you a few clues, and then you know, the next week, uh, you're given a few more clues, and you can kind of make some guesses, and okay, I think this is what's happening. I think this is what's going on. And then the next week, it confirms a few things, and uh, maybe reveals a bunch more. But then sometimes shows you know, do this where, okay, it answers these questions, but then it opens up all these other questions that you have. And I think in some ways, that's like the experience that uh, the prophets had throughout the Old Testament. They're given little bits. And even from the beginning, things that were, that were predicted and prophesied that uh, the Messiah is going to be coming. There's going to be a descendant of Eve that is going to crush the head of, of the serpent. And as you go through the Old Testament, more and more is revealed to mankind. More of the, the pieces of the puzzle are given. So they know things, but it also sometimes leads to more, more questions for them to ponder. We also see here that the Old Testament prophets, it says, spoke by the Spirit of Christ that was in them. So, again, these are scriptures, not the mere words of human beings, but God is speaking through. And we see here that it's the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the agent of revelation. I mean, God the Trinity is united in everything that the Trinity does, uh, but sometimes there is special uh, roles or job descriptions that different persons of the Trinity uh, take the lead on. And so the Holy Spirit is often involved in the giving of and communicating revelation. And so we see that him working in it through the, the Old Testament prophets uh, in the New Testament as well. 
um, even the coming of Christ, this revelation of Christ was by the, the Holy Spirit and to the Virgin Mary. And it doesn't just stop with the writing of, of Scripture. It's not as if the Holy Spirit um, in, talks about that he, he bore along the writers of Scripture so that they would write down uh, to the Word what he wanted written, using their personalities and everything, but making sure it was written down. But it's not as if when they got to, okay, we got 66 books here, we're done. All right, heading to retirement now. And, you know, he packs up and uh, goes, uh, you know, moves to the Florida part of heaven, and he's got nothing else to do. No, the Holy Spirit is still involved with us, okay? And that's why when we pray before we do a message, before the word is preached, I pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate this text to us, open our hearts, help us to see what's genuinely there, not just, okay, this is the first thing I think of when I see the passage, but, you know, in the context and as we study, what does this mean? And I hope that you pray as you're doing your uh, daily devotions and your Bible study or getting ready for Wednesday that you're asking for the Spirit's help. What a cool thing it is that we have the, the, the author, uh, the ultimate author of Scripture, not the human author, but the ultimate author, is with us to help us understand this and to illuminate what he has written to us. When it says it's the Spirit of Christ, we need to understand that in the right way. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit and Christ are the same. They're distinct persons within the Trinity. And it doesn't mean the Spirit of Christ in the same way that you might talk about your soul or your spirit. That's not what it means. But there's a relationship between the, uh, the Holy Spirit and Christ. And I think Part of it is because so much of the Spirit's work being sent by the Father and by the Son is to bring glory to Christ. That's so much the focus of his ministry. And we're seeing this both at, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. It was uh, J.I. Packer who referred to the work of the Holy Spirit as a, a spotlight ministry. I think, well, what does that mean? The reason uh, Packer said this is because a spotlight's job is to shine light on something else that's not itself. I mean, if you have a, a spotlight that's shining down on something, it's to draw attention to that. Not so you say, oh, what a wonderful spotlight that is. Let's look at that. It's so you're looking at the thing that the light is shining upon. So the, the job and I think the desire of the Holy Spirit isn't to take our attention off of Christ onto himself, but he is happy when the, we are focusing our attention on Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we ignore the Holy Spirit. And we've been talking about the role of the Holy Spirit every single week, and, and there's so much we need to appreciate. But part of what he does, he wants us to have our attention on Jesus Christ. And so we see along with this that all Scripture, from beginning to end, from, from Genesis to Revelation, is about Christ. Yes, the New Testament is about Jesus Christ. He comes into this world. But that's not like this plot uh, point that all of a sudden the writer said, well, what do we do here? We did the Old Testament and we got to come up with something creative for the sequel. Oh, let's have uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, no, this was from, this is planned from the beginning. Okay, this has been there from the beginning. This isn't something that was just made up. So the whole scripture is about Christ. And for the New Testament, 
It tells us about his first coming. It points ahead to his second coming. But even the Old Testament, right from the get-go, was pointing ahead to this coming Messiah that was going to come. And it says that these prophets, they're inquiring into these different mysteries. The person, who is this person that's going to come? What is, what is he really like? We know some things, but not everything. When is this going to be? What's the timing of this? And it talks about his, his sufferings and su- subsequent glories. That there's times where they see, okay, this one is this glorious king that comes that is victorious. And other times, with it's this person who comes is, is suffering. And I think oftentimes they were confused. Like, does this seem like it's the same person or is this two different persons? I want to show you just some examples of this, of uh, some of these Old Testament passages, and we don't have time to unpack all of these. But here's a few in the beginning that uh, talk about his coming and his, the sufferings of Christ, the sufferings of the coming Messiah. So just three examples. There's, there's quite a bit in Isaiah. In Isaiah, there's a section where it talks about the, the servant of the Lord that is coming. And we see it refers to him as a suffering servant. So even Isaiah 52, 14, says, And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. Maybe he's so beat up he doesn't even look like a human anymore. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Now, you could read all of Isaiah 53 because the whole thing basically is talking about the suffering of Christ and being pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Uh, As a sample, here's verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, that's interesting because this is written before Jesus Christ was, was nailed to the cross and pierced through by a, by a spear. They look on me who they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So you have these and other passages that talk about the, the Messiah being as one that suffers. But then you have also so many passages that talk about him coming as this coming king and being victorious. And here are some just as a sampling. Uh, Psalm 110 verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, that's how you know you have conquered your enemies. Okay? when you can use them as furniture to kick your feet up upon them. Okay, you have been triumphant when you can use your enemies as your, your footstool. Isaiah 61.1, and Jesus quotes this for himself, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And then there's this great passage. Uh, there's more we can talk about, but this one from Daniel 7. You have this vision that's being given to Daniel. And in this, you have the, the ancient of days sitting on this throne. He's highly and exalted and all this. And then this other one that says, like a son of man comes up. 
And think of how mysterious this would be to people living in the Old Testament times. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, this is to that one that's coming up, was given dominion and glory. Wait, doesn't only God deserve glory? And a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. That can be translated as worship him. It's that kind of service. Shouldn't that just be for God? His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So again, we can look back on this, and for us, we can make sense of this a lot better because we understand there's one God, uh, but with, in God, there's the Trinity. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. They're distinct persons, but they're one God. And so we look at this and we realize, okay, it's talking about there's God the Father here, and we also see God the Son, and that's why they both can have glory and they both can be worshipped, but they're also distinct, and that can kind of make sense to us. Back in Daniel's time, when these things were still really fuzzy, be like, okay, we understand this, and this is true, but how do you make sense of this? You know, they'd be wondering, trying to inquire, what, is, what does this mean? How is this going to work? And so for us, it's like, you know, looking at things when, you know, the end of the, the sitcom, the, the show, and all the plot points have been revealed, and we can look back, and, okay, it makes sense. Well, there's still other things that even we, we don't really understand. I mean, we may be able to make better sense of this, but we still realize, yeah, the Trinity, okay, we can understand the basics, but do we really get how that works? That God is one and three at the same time? Okay, we know one God, three persons, but, you know, it's one of those things where it answers uh, many questions, but it still leaves you in wonder with so many other questions yet to be revealed for us. But when the prophets, I think they looked at different verses that were like this, some on suffering and some on God's victory, it was confusing because they thought, well, if he's the coming king, how can he be suffering? How can he die and be, have a miserable defeat? Is this talking about two different persons? How does this work? And they had trouble putting these two, two things together. You know, if you go out to the mountains, you go to Colorado or somewhere uh, where there's the big legit mountains, and you look in the distance uh, there may be times where you say, okay, there's all these mountains and they all look like they're part of the same mountain range. But then you get closer, or you, you find out more, and you realize, you know what, this is actually two different mountain ranges. That there's a range here and there might be a big valley or big space between and then there's more big mountains behind. And what looked like they were all together in the same range was actually two different ranges. And I think that's part of a way that we can understand what it was like to the Old Testament prophets. They saw different passages that sometimes talked about um, things, oftentimes with Christ's first coming, when he did come to be a suffering servant, and he came to die on the cross for us. That was his mission. And he came humbly on a donkey's colt, and uh, that he came to suffer and die and be pierced for us. And other passages that talk about his, his second coming, um, and already he is, he is risen, he is victorious, but he's going to come again. And he's going to reign, and he's going to set up his kingdom on this world. And so really there's these two mountain ranges of the two comings of Christ. 
And so the Old Testament prophets are looking, they're trying to understand this and the wonder and the mystery, this Messiah, and he's going to come, and what is he going to do, and how is this going to work? And it was amazing to them. In verse 12, our passage goes on and says, It was revealed to them, this is to the, old, the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. This lets us know that scripture is written especially for future generations. Yeah, there's the original audience, and we need to try to understand that. As we're looking at 1 Peter, we want to understand what this was to the original audience. But because this is written by the Holy Spirit as the, the, the editor, the one that is behind all of this, God knows that this message is not going to just be for the original audience, but for generations, for centuries, or thousands of years to come. And that the majority of people that will listen to this and read it and benefit from it are in the future. And so the Holy Spirit knew how to write this in a way that was going to benefit not just people in that old time back then, but people today, right now, in this year, and in years to come until Christ comes again. Now, I've written things that have been outdated so quickly, things that go out of date so quick. You know, when COVID first hit, and we had to make plans as far as, okay, how do we respond to this as a church? What do we do? I remember one week that um, Pastor Nick and I, we kept meeting and thinking about things and making a plan and uh, what we're going to then communicate to the deacons to say this is what we think we ought to do. And there was one afternoon that, okay, after we did this, I typed up this long email to send to the deacons to uh, explain things and to give our, our thoughts on what we ought to do next. And before I could even send the email, uh, the news came on again and everything changed again and everything I'd written was completely outdated and completely worthless. But that's not what Scripture is like because God knows the future and he writes it in such a way that it's valuable then and it is valuable to us now. So realize this scripture is, is written to us today as well. In the passage, it talks about and been preached to and preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. You know, the word gospel literally means good news. That's what it is. And realize if it's good news, it means it's not just advice that you should do. Primarily, no, news is a report of what has already happened. That the message of the good news is that the Messiah, for us, has come. And that he has died on the cross and that he has risen again. It's, it's telling us what, is, what has happened. It's not just giving advice saying, well, you know, if you, here's the new plan I have for you and you should exercise like this and you should take this advice and you'll live a better life. Um, first and foremost, it's what God has done already. And if it's good news, news needs to be communicated, needs to be delivered by messengers. Um, if you had, a, let's say, a, a newspaper, and if you just printed it in a bunch of newspapers and left it at the print shop, it's not actually getting out to anyone. The good news has to get out, one, be broadcast or communicated somehow. And, th and thank God for the people that transmitted this message to us. We need to be bringing the message to other people. But we realize, too, that it is by the Holy Spirit. That it's not just up to us to have to work to communicate this message, 
but the Holy Spirit is the one that goes with it and the one that takes us and, and connects it to hearts so that it implants and so that uh, they can understand and believe this. The power of the Holy Spirit goes with this to, to convict the hearts of people. Before we move on, let me give you four applications that we can draw from at least this first part. And the one, first, is trust that all Scripture is from the Lord, unified in its message, and given for you. This should be the first thing we need to, to realize, that this is the character of Scripture, and this will change how we view it and how we look at it. That it's not the mere words of human beings. Uh, it's, it's from the Lord, given by the Holy Spirit. It's all about Christ. It's all about the main theme is salvation through Christ. And that it's given for you and for your benefit. Now, if you found out somewhere out there, there was going to be a lawyer reading a will for somebody, and it's somebody that you don't know who the person who died was, you don't know all the, the family members, you have no idea who these people are, that's probably not going to be a very interesting thing to say, well, I want to go, I want to hear this, I'm going to pay attention. It wouldn't matter at all. But it's different if you know that this is for you. If you know that, okay, you're finding out, did you get an inheritance? Is this, how does this relate to you? You're going to be paying attention. When you read this book, this is not just something that's for other people or for people back then. This is God speaking his message to you. And it affects how we ought to pay attention to this and study it and take, us, take it in. This means also that we should be eager to look into the glorious truths of salvation. Be eager. Don't, be, don't neglect to do this. Don't be ho-hum about this. Want to look into this to understand it, to understand the riches of it, the glory of it, all that's been revealed to us. You know, we can be thankful that we have so much fuller of a revelation of all of salvation in Christ that we have today. Jesus said in Matthew 13, he said, But blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now that the Messiah has come, there's so much more that we have. There's still mystery, there still is, but there's so much more that we know. I mean, let it change you. Let it, let it capture your heart. Let it cause you to give God glory. And may it give you joy. Even as you're going through maybe some of the sufferings and trials and some of the hardest things that you could be going through, focus on this and this glory. This is what Peter has been telling us, uh, is that this is going to be hope that is going to help you to get through those trials and those sufferings. Let that joy outweigh your sorrows. With this as well, know that the Son of God had to suffer for your salvation. So the prophets looked and they saw that the Messiah was going to suffer. Christ's mere coming into this world wasn't enough to save you. Just as coming into this world or being born or being human, that wasn't enough. Jesus' teaching wasn't enough to save you. His example wasn't enough to save you because we're not saved by following his example. We're not saved by, by doing good works. For us to have the opportunity to be, to be saved, the Son of God had to suffer 
for us, had to suffer for you. That was the only way this was possible, was for the God-man, one that was truly, fully God, and who became then truly and fully a human being, to die for the sins of human beings. He had to suffer. He had to die as our substitute. I think the last thing we can get from this, notice it says, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories back in verse 11. There's an order here. There's suffering, then there's glory. That's for Christ, but it's also for us. Understand, I think Peter's been getting at this in all of these passages so far. Understand that for both Christ and for believers, the order is suffering, then glory. We want it to be just, okay, glory right now, glory right away, let's skip the suffering part. But just like for Christ, he suffered first, that was his first coming, that was his first mission, and then, yeah, he's lifted up, and then there's, there's all this glory to come. Peter wants us to realize that that's, that's the order, that's how it is for us as well, too. That this life, there is going to be suffering, there is going to be trials, there is going to be all of this. It, it's not just immediate, oh, you come to Christ and everything's done. It's nothing but happy times and uh, no suffering. No, there is trials, there is, but God is behind it. He's using it. But then there's also the glory that is ahead, the hope that is in the future. And Peter keeps telling us to look forward to this, to look forward to this salvation, the rest of salvation that is yet to come. There's suffering, but there is glory to come, grace that was to be yours. Future grace coming from a God that knows the future. God did not disappoint the Old Testament prophets, and he is not going to disappoint now. God knows the future. Expect and prepare for suffering, but have your hope in the glory to come. So Peter is saying, hey, for one, it's not just me that is full of wonder by this. The Old Testament prophets did as well. But then if you notice at the very end of verse 12, it also mentions, mentions the angels. And this is the last thing I want to focus on. Not only is it the case that the, the prophets looked ahead in wonder, but also, for second point here, the angels look on in wonder to our salvation in Christ. It says at the end of verse 12, things into which angels long to look. So we have to think about what, what are angels? We have to get this right or none of this is going to make sense. And the first thing we need to clear up is a, a common misconception, and this is in the world, this is in movies, and a lot of Christians too. They'll say uh, uh, things like, um, you know, a loved one dies and heaven got a new angel. Okay, the first thing we need to realize about angels, angels are not dead human beings. When you die, you do not become an angel. Okay? So heaven does not get another angel when, when a loved one dies. The immaterial part of us, if you're a believer, goes to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So yes, your, your soul or spirit, the immaterial part, does uh, go to be with Christ if you're a believer, but it doesn't become an angel. Angels are a separate type of being there's the human race, and then there's uh, angels, which are a separate uh, type of, uh, 
of being, created distinctly, created differently, probably created before us. And Scripture talks quite a bit. They're, they're spirit beings, meaning they don't have physical bodies like we do. Or they're pure spirit. They're very powerful. They're very powerful. And in fact, whenever they appear to somebody in Scripture, I mean, people are terrified because these are things that strike awe and fear into people. They're not like these cute little uh, things that you put on greeting cards, you know, a little naked baby with a bow and arrow or something like that. Uh, these are, you know, majestic, powerful beings. And they are in the presence of God, at least the ones that didn't fall away. And when you look at Scripture, you see that there are two kinds of angels, roughly speaking, because uh, some angels have fallen away. That they originally were created good, but some followed Lucifer, this, this high angel, and rebelled against God, and they became the demons. Okay? But it refers to the ones that didn't rebel as the elect angels. And think of all they've experienced, being with God and seeing his, his glory and being used by him. They minister on God's behalf and for us. Uh, God uses them as messengers. That's key of what the word angel means. It has the idea of also of a messenger, and it's often what they would do. So angels are not dead people, but they long to look into this salvation. Why do you think that is? Is it, this is like an intellectual curiosity well, I've decided to take up study in human salvation, and I want to learn some more facts and maybe do a presentation, or I'm working on my master's degree in human salvation, so there's some details here I want to inquire into. No, I don't think it's like that. Is it jealousy? Maybe they're jealous of us. Well, maybe in a way, but not in a sinful way, because um, the ones that haven't fallen, they, they don't have sin, so not in a sinful way. Here's something I think is key to think about. And angels, man, they, they know about God. They've seen God. They've seen him at work. But like I said, there's differences. They're not humans. And this means that Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did not become an angel. And we know that from Scripture. And if he didn't become an angel, that also means there's no way he could have died for angels, dying in their place. Christ did not become an angel, and he did not die for angels. One passage that teaches this very clearly is in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. I'll read this to you. In section, he's talking about the superiority of Christ, even superior to these angelic beings. It says here, verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, okay, humans, we have flesh and blood, he himself, okay, the Son of God, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He had to be a human so that he could die. And through this to have our salvation by, the, by the, his, his human death, which he couldn't do if he didn't become a human being. And then it says, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And then it specifically says this in verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps. So Christ did not die for angels. He did not come to bring salvation to angels. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. And sometimes it's used that, to use the physical descendants of Abraham. And sometimes this can also mean those that are descendants in the sense of being like Abraham and having faith. And that's the ones that he saves, human beings that have their faith put in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. Those are the ones that, 
that he brings salvation to. Verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Christ became a human being all the way through, not just partly human, but all the way human, without ceasing to become God. So that, so it's giving a reason, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So that he had to become a priest so they could offer sin, uh, sacrifice for our sin. Uh, high pr- the priest would offer the sacrifices to God. And Jesus did that, both as the one offering the sacrifice, and it's also, at, so as a human, he's also receiving because he also is God, and he also is the sacrifice. That he is the one, his death on the cross was the propitiation. That means, it's a word that means that he, uh, he took, he absorbed the wrath that we deserve. And for all of this, he needed to become a human being so that he could die for human beings, so that he could die in our place, in in your place. And this would only work if he became a human being. And he never became this for angels. And so there is not salvation possible for the angels that fell, for Satan, for the demons. They had no second chance. They had their choice to sin or not, to rebel or not. But after that, it was locked in. You know, we tend to think that God owes everyone a second chance, that he owes it to us. And we're so used to the fact that we have a second chance, that we have an opportunity to be saved, at least in this life, as long as you are still breathing. There's still this opportunity for salvation that doesn't last forever. It's this life only. But you realize that God doesn't even owe us that. God could have, and he would have been absolutely fair to do so, to treat us just like the angels. Oh, you're a sinner? You rebelled? Okay, you get what you deserve. We have people that are upset with God and upset with Scripture because it doesn't teach that there are many ways to salvation. They think that's what's fair. There should be many ways to salvation. And Scripture says there's just one way you should be floored. We should be floored that there's even one way for rebel sinners to be saved. That's the amazing thing. What is not surprising, it would not be surprising or wonder-inducing at all for God to punish rebels. And that's what sin is. It is rebellion against God, against the God who made us, who has authority over us. And when we sin, whether it's a big sin or a little sin, we're rebelling against this God It would not be surprising at all for God to give justice, to give condemnation, to give what we deserve. That's just, that's normal. It might still be amazing and, you know, to to look at, uh, but it's not something that would make you scratch your head and, and seem unusual or be surprising. What is surprising is for God to offer pardon to rebels, any type of pardon. And then how much more if he offers a pardon that is, this is a free gift, completely free. Not saying, I'll pardon you, but you need to do a hundred years of penance and work and all this stuff, and then I, I might consider saving you. But no, it's a free gift, completely free, as the Bible teaches. And how much more amazing when you realize that in order for God to do this without compromising his holiness and justice, that the Son of God had to die in our place for this that the son of this king will be the one that would be humiliated and tortured and, and butchered 
so that the rebels can be set free and pardoned. And then how much more that after doing this, he ad- the king adopts you and makes you an heir of the king. I mean, this is a wondrous salvation. And the angels, it didn't work that way for them. They can just look on and wonder and be like, wow, what is this like? And so many other elements of salvation that are amazing, that's by grace and grace alone. This idea of the new birth that God, through the Holy Spirit, causes us to be, to be born again, to be renewed from the, the center. That salvation has to do with imputation. That the, this means that uh, when you trust Christ as Savior, your sins are transferred to Christ on the cross. And his perfect life is transferred into your bank account, so to speak, so that you get credit for that. We're united to Christ through faith, united with him, that we're adopted by him. We also see God's holy wrath against sin on the cross. We see God's justice, his love, his mercy, his faithfulness. If you think about salvation and you think it's just, well, I said the prayer or whatever I needed to to get saved, man, you haven't grasped it. It's not just this simple thing. It's like this gigantic diamond with all these facets and all these glory, and we need to keep looking at it in Scripture and realizing all these amazing things, wondrous things about our salvation in Christ. But the biggest mystery for the angels, as they look on this and they can't grasp this, and what an amazing thing that God did all this to save us. I think the biggest mystery the biggest amazing thing. Think about this. We get together here and we worship God and we believe the Holy Spirit is helping us and we have some great times of worship. But then you think, oh, but man, think of what the angels get to have. You know, they're in heaven and they get to actually see God, you know, and to experience him. And okay, some of them, you know, it says in Isaiah, are so close they have to shield their eyes because his glory is so great. Wow, the joy they must have in God, that must be amazing. How much they know him, how much they, they see him. And wow, they've seen God at work. I mean, they saw God, you know, through Moses parting the Red Sea and all these miracles. They saw God in creation, making the world and how, how that worked and all these amazing things. And then they even saw, you know, God come down and be born in, in Christ and, uh, as a baby and then grow up and do his miracles and then die on the cross. And they got to witness this, I believe, from, uh, from heaven, seeing this happening. And then Christ raising victorious from the dead and then ascending. They, they've seen all of these things. And we'd be like, wow, if I could see that, wow, the, the glory I'd be able to give God, just the joy that would be in my heart. Christian, I want you to hear this. For all that the angels have experienced, Okay, for all that they've known about the glory of God, there's one thing that they have never experienced and they can never experience that you experience. They do not know what it's like in their heart to be able to say, the Son of God died for me. But you can know that. And you believe that. And that is why it it is better to be a sinner saved by grace than to be the highest angel in heaven for all eternity. Because, Christian, believer, you know that Jesus, the Son of God, this amazing God, died 
in your place, died for you. And because of that, starting now for all eternity, you are going to have more happiness. You're going to have more joy in God forever and ever and ever than the angels can possibly have because you know what it means to say, Christ died for me. It says in Scripture that Jesus said there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you don't know him as the one that died for you, you can be saved. You're not like the angels that you blew it and it's over. Christ came to save sinners like me and people in this room and like you. And it's by faith alone. Just turn to him. Trust him. It's not by good works. And you will find that you have a Savior that died for you and that paid it all. If this brings angels joy to see God at work and to see him glorified, how much more for us when we can know in our heart of hearts even though you might be going through the most painful trials that you could possibly imagine, that you can know with conviction, Christ died for me. What a wonder. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Let's pray. Lord God, we stand before you in wonder and awe. We can't believe this glorious truth that you have revealed and you have told us that you came to pardon rebel sinners like us, so undeserving, Lord. And we confess our sin, we confess how much we do not deserve this. The amazing grace and mercy that you've had on us, not just to, to pardon us, but how you did it. And Jesus came and became a human being so he could die for humans. And not just humans in general, but he would die for me and for each of us. Lord, we trust you. We praise you. Let us hope in you. Let us have hearts that are filled with wonder for your amazing grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.